0: I'd say that was probably a little less confused than the average congregation would do, just a little bit. And uh, you know, what we just confessed there is the reality of the Trinity, didn't we, in that song? Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's by no accident that uh, singing in rounds three different parts can be a little bit confusing. Sometimes the Trinity is a little bit confusing to us, isn't it? We're going to see if we can remedy some of that, at least here today and next week. Hallett mentioned to me before the service, he said, you know, it's really hard to find any modern worship songs that relate to the Trinity, and that's really true. The hymns are rich in Trinitarian theology, uh, but uh, modern-day songs, maybe a little bit less so. It's interesting, as I thought about this this week, I remembered the idea that, you know, younger children— have a view of God that's sometimes pretty insightful, but sometimes it's confused, isn't it? And sometimes children have ideas about God that are funny. And sometimes it's all three of the above at the same time. And here's some examples that I found in children's letters to God of all of those things. Dear God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? Nobody will tell me. Or how about these? Dear God. Is it true that my father won't get into heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? (laughs) Dear God, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? Dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? I've been wondering that myself. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. This next one's from a little boy named Bruce. Hmm. Dear God, please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. <laughs> Dear God, I think about you sometimes even when I'm not praying. That's good. Dear God, we, we uh, read that Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school they said you did it, so I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> we adults sometimes struggle with some of the concepts of God that we hear about or even those that we read in Scripture we don't always get it right either or if we get it right we don't always understand why it's right so today and next Sunday we're gonna spend some time looking at a theme that's very biblical an idea that's distinctively Christian in its understanding but one with which most of us if we're honest with ourselves and with each other we'd have to say we struggle with this or at least we have struggled with it at some point in our Christian lives Now, we may not struggle to believe it, we might not struggle to believe it either because someone whose spiritual maturity and authority we trust has told us this is true, or maybe even we've seen it in Scripture ourselves, we've seen these hints of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, seen it spoken of, and even though it's not entirely understandable to us, we say, okay, it's in Scripture, so I do believe it. But the doctrine of the Trinity Trinity is a very challenging one to our finite minds, Despite the fact that it's referenced in the Word of God more times than we can possibly mention, even this morning and next week combined, the New Testament especially assumes the existence of the one God we serve revealed to us and relating to us in three separate persons. It's interesting to note that the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but then again, Neither do we find a word in the Bible translated Bible. Neither is the word our incarnation. So the absence of this word alone is not enough for us to dismiss this as an unbiblical idea. We have to wrestle with what we read. We have to wrestle with what Scripture reveals to us, what God has chosen to reveal to us about himself. This is the way God is. And for us to try to explain it away somehow because we can't fully understand it is to do less than what Jesus told us to do. Jesus told us to do in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So to worship God in truth, we must worship him as he reveals himself to us. That little round we sang just a moment ago, is worshiping God in truth, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The way he reveals himself to us, as difficult as it may be for us to fully engage and understand, is as one God in three persons. Here's a doctrine that the early church understood, at least in part, by experience, even before they could articulate it well, and even before they could begin to explain it or understand it as much as any human mind can truly understand. One infinite God who reveals himself to us in three persons. Among the reams of material I read and studied in preparation for this message, I found that one author says essentially that believers in Christ already have experienced the reality of the trinity And we know this doctrine even if we don't realize it. We know God as three persons, even if we can't fully explain this idea. There's a theologian and writer named Fred Sanders. He's a professor at Biola University in California. He wrote a book called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. And then there's another book that I read by uh, James White. And this book was called The Forgotten Trinity. Among the many resources that I studied for today's message, I can recommend both of these books if you're interested in a more detailed study of this doctrine. But let me first start by quoting Fred Sanders about the Trinity. He says, reality comes first, and understanding follows it. If you want to cultivate the ability to think well about the Trinity, the first step is to realize that there is more to Trinitarianism than just thinking well. Instead, Christians should recognize that when we start thinking about the Trinity, we do so because we find ourselves deeply involved in the reality of God's triune life as he has opened it up to us for our salvation and revealed it to us in the Bible. In order to start doing good Trinitarian theology, we need only to reflect on that present reality and unpack it. The more we realize that we are already compassed about by the reality of the gospel trinity, the more our trinitarianism will matter to us. Evangelicals in particular should recognize that we have everything we need to think about the trinity in a way that changes everything. So why is that? Why can this theologian say that we already have everything we need to think about and to understand in a significant way this important biblical teaching about the Trinity. We know it because we've experienced it. We know it because we've experienced it. If you have trusted Christ for your salvation, I'm assuming that almost everybody, if not everybody in here, is in that category. If you're leaning on his saving grace for your eternal destiny, you do know the Trinity because you've experienced God in all three persons whether or not you can explain it that way in Trinitarian terms. You are a Christian because you've received the spirit of adoption from the Father. You are a follower of Jesus, God the Son, because you have living inside you and have had living inside you since the moment you surrendered to his grace, a spirit, God the Holy Spirit, that enables you to call God, Abba, Father. Notice what we've described here. We have God the Father. We have God the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's the Trinity. Sanders writes, the Trinity is lurking in the gospel, just as it is lurking in the life of every believer. This Trinitarian reality is going on in our Christian lives, whether we know that we know it or not. We have a tacit. As believers, we have a tacit understanding of the Trinity, even if we don't always have an explicit understanding of this doctrine. Tacit means understood or implied without being stated. Explicit means fully or clearly expressed or demonstrated, leaving nothing merely implied. Theologian James White believes this is exactly what the early church had as well. Even as they began to form the canon of Scripture and began to illustrate this doctrine from the stories of the early church none of these passages in scripture he writes none of these passages say now the doctrine of the Trinity is this nor do they need to there is an entire body of shared experience and beliefs that form the background for these passages it's much like a letter to a friend doesn't require you to go over who you are your history and background and shared experiences In the same way, the early believers spoke easily of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit without giving the slightest indication that they found anything strange in joining these divine persons in the one work of salvation and in the edification of the church. But moving to a more explicit understanding of the Trinity is not unimportant, and that's what we hope to accomplish over the course of this week's message and the next my hope is that we can move each of us as individuals can move to a place that we're like the early believers where we can speak easily of god the father god the son god the holy spirit as we see god at work in our own salvation and our edification and our transformation as believers in a trinitarian god if you think you have trouble understanding the trinity move over It's a big club. Though the earliest believers may indeed have been very comfortable with this doctrine because they experienced and saw it in action in the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit, since those early days, Christians have wrestled with this mystery. They've done so throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ. It's been a major impetus for false doctrine. It's a reason for many of the early church councils that were compelled to articulate Christian theology, Christian teaching, Christian doctrine in a way that was clear. It has been a catalyst of heresy, a rich mine for not just false Christian doctrine, but false religions. And it has been a hurdle to overcome in evangelizing religions that mischaracterize what this doctrine really means. Though the earliest members of the Universal Church of Christ had at least a tacit understanding of this great truth of our faith. As time went on, the early church quickly saw what we even see today. That is that the doctrine of the Trinity is critical for a truly Christian faith. And that the doctrine of the Trinity, when it's improperly understood, is part of all kinds of not just misunderstanding, but falsehoods, false doctrine, and heresy that lead people astray from pure devotion to Christ. So before we take a brief look at the history of the Trinity and deviation from this doctrine, actually we'll do that next week in church history and in the present day, let's take a moment to define this a little more fully. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we see one of the most clear examples of the Trinity at work. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So here in this passage, we see all three persons of the Trinity in action, either visibly or audibly. Now in the Old Testament, in several places... We see definite hints of the Trinity. In the New Testament, this doctrine is opened up for us much more clearly because it's in redemption. It's in redemption. As we've noted, it's in the gospel itself, it's in the good news that the Trinity is most clearly at work, most clearly active, most clearly present. In this passage, we see God the Father speaking from heaven. We see Jesus, God the Son, being baptized. He's a person. He's a person that the Father loves. He's a person that the Father is pleased with. He's a son. And we see God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Now Jesus isn't speaking to himself here, but he's spoken to by God the Father. There's no way you can read this particular passage of Scripture with any kind of integrity in interpretation and confuse the three individual persons of the one who is Trinity. This passage demonstrates some key elements of the Trinity, which we're going to explore in more detail as we go along here today and next week. First, we see the deity of Jesus. We also see that in, that we, we see that in many other passages, but without the deity of Christ, there can be no Trinity. This is a critical element of the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. God the Father is not one-third God. God the Holy Spirit is not one-third God. God the Son is not one-third God. We also see the intimate relationship between the persons in the Trinity. God the Son, Jesus, fulfills God the Father's will by being baptized. God the Holy Spirit, seen here in the form of a dove, expresses God's approval of Jesus' act of obedience, just as much as the words that are heard from heaven. By implication, those are clearly attributed to God the Father. Anyone seeking to deny any aspect of the Trinity in some way has a lot they have to explain away if you point to this passage, if you begin to look at this passage of Scripture. This is an eyewitness report repeated in Mark and Luke with a few different words and details, but it's a clear example of the Trinity at work. One God... Three persons with different roles working together in relationship. Now, one of the problems with explaining the Trinity is that we often tend to think of and explain things by means of analogy. An analogy is explaining that this something is somehow like that something. And this often helps us. It does help us to relate to something that's not as easily understandable in a way that's a little bit more understandable when we make analogies between things now this has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon except to illustrate analogies i want to read some analogies and these are from a humor contest to see who could write the funniest analogies and i just was looking for a sermon to use these in and these are analogies but they don't really have anything to do with the trinity her face was a perfect oval like a circle that had two sides gently compressed by a thigh master His thoughts tumbled in his head, making and breaking alliances like underpants in a dryer without (laughs) cling-free. She grew on him like he was a colony of E. coli and he was room temperature Canadian beef. (laughs) She had a deep, throaty, genuine laugh like the sound a dog makes just before it throws up. (laughs) Her hair glistened in the rain like a nose hair after a sneeze. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. (laughs) Even in his last years, granddad had a mind like a steel trap, only one that had been left out so long it had rusted shut. The young fighter had a hungry look, the kind you get from not eating for a while. He was as lame as a duck, not the metaphorical lame duck either, but a real duck that was actually lame, maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. <laughs> and last and certainly least, he was deeply in love when she spoke. He thought he heard bells as if she were a garbage truck backing up. <laughs> Those are analogies. Those are analogies. They're funny. Yes, analogies are helpful. They're sometimes funny, even scripture we know uses analogies, doesn't it? We are like sheep who've gone astray. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed or like leaven. But here's the problems with analogies of the Trinity and indeed any attribute of God. They fall way, way short of adequate explanation. They might lend some understanding depending on what we're talking about they may not be truly helpful and they always break down at some point what's more in attempting to compare God to something analogies may actually explain something wrongly here's an example that I found related to the Trinity some people have explained that the Trinity is like H2O the Trinity is like water Now, water exists in different forms right It can be frozen, in which case it's ice. It can be vapor, like the water vapor that forms clouds or fog. And it can be liquid, like this water in my cup. But to say that the Trinity is like that not only falls short of explaining its reality, but actually denies something very important that Scripture teaches us about the Trinity. Think about this. That's because, you know, water can exist in vapor frozen, or liquid form, right? And still, whatever form it's in, it's still essentially water. It's H2O. It's the same chemical compound. But here's the deal. It cannot be all three at the same time. It cannot be all three at the same time. So the water, vapor, liquid, ice, that doesn't, doesn't work. That doesn't work as an analogy of the Trinity. What Scripture teaches us is that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit, all at the same time, eternally. It has always been this way. The Trinity is eternally coexistent. When we begin next week to look at some of the false doctrines and heresies that have been rooted in a misunderstanding of the Trinity, we'll see this one clearly. The reason it's very difficult to create analogies about God's attributes is that God is absolutely unique. We can't come up with an adequate analogy because we can't truly compare God as a being to anything or anyone else. The Old Testament says this in Exodus 15:11, "Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders?" So, though I do reserve the right to resort to an analogy or two in this message. I want to speak to you now for a few moments propositionally about the Trinity for a moment. Let's use some dictionary definitions. Holman Bible Dictionary says this, Trinity is a theological term used to define God as an undivided unity expressed in the threefold nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As a distinctive Christian doctrine, the Trinity is considered as a divine mystery beyond human comprehension to be reflected upon only through scriptural revelation. That's what we're doing here this morning and we'll do next week. This uh, article in the Holman Bible Dictionary concludes uh, the article on the Trinity with this. It says, first of all, God is one. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. His offer of salvation in the Old Testament receives a fuller revelation in the New Testament in a way that is not different, but more complete. The doctrine of the Trinity does not abandon the monotheistic faith of Israel. That's important. Number two, God has three distinct ways of being in the redemptive event, yet he remains an undivided unity. That God the Father imparts himself to mankind through Son and Spirit without ceasing to be himself is at the very heart of the Christian faith. A compromise in either the absolute sameness of the Godhead or the true diversity reduces the reality of salvation. The primary way of grasping the concept of the Trinity is through the threefold participation in salvation. The approach of the New Testament is not to discuss the essence of the Godhead, but the particular aspects of the revelatory event that include the definitive presence of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And finally, it says the doctrine of the Trinity is an absolute mystery. It's primarily known not through speculation, but through experiencing the act of grace through personal faith. There's one way to look at it let me give you another way now we're gonna spend a little time doing this looking at it different ways because it brings out different nuances of what we want to get at but it gets at the same basic teaching for example the ESV study Bible tells us that the biblical teaching on the Trinity embodies four essential affirmations first of all there is one and only one true and living God secondly this one God eternally exists now these words are important doesn't just exist, eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. And number four, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. There are creeds, there are books, there are all kinds of things that have been written to affirm these basic truths of the Trinity. We see the differences among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the way they relate to one another and the role that each one plays in accomplishing the unified purpose that God has. We see this most clearly in the New Testament where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are seen working out God's eternal plan of redemption. And we see a pattern that emerges in scripture. We see this especially and most clearly in the New Testament. The Father, for example, we see the Father plans. The Father directs and the Father sends. We also see that the Son is sent by the Father. The Son is subject to God's authority, but he's also obedient to God's will. Both the Father and the Son direct and send the Spirit. And we also see that the Spirit carries out the will of both God the Father and God the Son. Yet this is at the same time consistent with these three persons being equal in attributes. We see in John chapter 1, verse 3, and in Hebrews 1, 2, in addition to other places, that the Father created through the Son. The Son was the Father's agent in creation. In John chapter 1, verse 3, you might want to turn there because we're going to look at that a little more fully here in a moment, if you have your Bibles. But in uh, the third verse of John chapter 1, it says, Through him... Him is referring to Jesus here. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And we see this reiterated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. In fact, John chapter 1 is full of a very rich Trinitarian theology and imagery. And it's worth studying in that context. But even with a two-part message, we can't take time to do that in depth today. But I want to read a section of this amazing chapter. And as I do, as I read this, or as you read along with me, look for what this passage has to say about the Trinity. And again, we're looking at John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14 and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So digest that for a second. And then in verse 14, if you didn't know who John was referring to when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word is Jesus. And he's identified clearly in verse 14 where it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. There it is, the one God. We're talking monotheism here, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then finally in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Made him known through the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. So here we see that God the Son revealed as the word Jesus in verse 14 was already there in the beginning. Jesus was not created by God. That's a heresy. And that's something that's one of the things where people really get off track when they consider the Trinity. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit inside the Virgin Mary. That means when God created time, as we know it, God the Son was already there, as was God the Father, and we know from other passages of Scripture that God the Holy Spirit was there too. Now, God the Son was not made flesh in the beginning yet. That happened at the incarnation, but he was there at creation. Even the Old Testament hints at this without explicitly saying it. In Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. To whom was God speaking here? Was that a royal we or an editorial we, like a queen might say? We are not amused. Is it like that? No, I believe God the Father was speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We see other differences in the roles of the three persons of the Godhead. For example, God the Father did not become flesh to die on the cross, and neither did the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' job, and it was his job from before time began, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed together to each one's role in the plan of redemption. Isn't that a marvelous thought? Isn't that a mind-blowing thought? We see in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning with verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved." What a wonderful thought. What an amazing thing. Now, this kind of unity combined with diversity is why the Trinity is a great mystery to our finite human minds. However, think about this. The world does show some reflections of this idea in many ways and we have to be clear they're just reflections they're not the real thing but for example think about this how does good music work you get individual members of a symphony or an orchestra or even a good rock band and you join their diverse elements together or their voices to make one whole often beautiful or enjoyable piece of music the human body as the Apostle Paul so beautifully describes in Scripture is one unit made of many parts and he uses that analogy to compare the human body to the church how about a good meal a good meal isn't just a steak now I think that's a great start personally but what's a steak without a good baked potato maybe a salad some vegetables a roll what about a football team we've looked at this idea before even superstars are worthless without their team if the team doesn't work together a team isn't successful They don't win championships. It takes many parts working together as one unit. These distinct parts come together to form a unified role, each performing their roles, leading to a unified result. Unity and distinction. This is the principle that's at the heart of the Trinity. And can't we see a reflection of this in so much of life if we just look around? Not perfectly as we see it in the Trinity, but a reflection that reveals something important. So the three biblical doctrines that flow directly into this theme of the Trinity are these. And again, I'm restating things because we need to get it. There is one and only one God, eternal, immutable, There are three eternal persons described in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These persons are never identified with one another. That is, they are carefully differentiated as persons. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are identified as being fully deity. That is, the Bible teaches the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the deity of God the Father. So as we close part one of this message with this, let me illustrate with this diagram that I think might be helpful. Digest that for a second. Don't worry about trying to copy it down, because I'm going to have Deb reproduce that on the cover of the bulletin next week. But look at these statements that are contained in this little diagram. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Next week, we'll look at some more of this amazing doctrine of our faith and what Scripture teaches, as well as some aberrations of this doctrine. And finally, I think we'll take a look at what does this mean. Why do we care? What does this mean to us? But for now, let me bring this to a close with this. The Trinity is the supreme revelation that God has made of himself to us, his followers. God revealed this truth about himself himself most clearly in the incarnation itself, when Jesus, the eternal Son, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That one act revealed the Trinity to us in a way that nothing else truly could. Quoting again James White from the book that I mentioned earlier, Every true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and the Spirit is always going to fulfill the promise to lead us into all truth. We do not just sit back and expect God to zap us with some emotional surge. Instead, the Spirit drives us into his word, enlightening our minds and filling our hearts with love for the truths that we discover. Let me say the same thing that James White wrote to the readers of this book on the Trinity. He wrote this, I wish to invite you, my fellow believer, to a deeper, higher, more intense love of God's truth. I hope that God in his grace will use this to implant in your heart a deep longing to know him even more. That's my prayer. That's my prayer that God would accomplish this in each of us this week and next as we ponder together the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of Scripture that you are one God in three persons. We thank you, Father, that as followers of Christ, we are able to experience the reality of all three purpose, persons. We can call you Father God. We have the Son, Father. We, we follow the Son. And Lord, we have the Spirit living inside of us as a seal for our redemption. We're grateful for these realities, Father. Help us to grasp the things that we need to. Help us to attain to more of an understanding of this wonderful, amazing doctrine. We're grateful for these things, Lord God, and we commit them to you. We ask you, Father, through your Holy Spirit and by your word, Father, to illuminate this to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.